This is episode 87. In this episode, California and Japan have a lot in common. We are both sitting on the ring of fire. How does that affect us both, and why should we care? Half of Tokyo was totally burnt down. California and Japan are historically disaster prone. We face floods and earthquakes. The people in Kobe erroneously uh, believe that they will not have earthquakes in the future. So they were really suddenly hit by a surprise. A shocking surprise that left more than 6,000 Japanese dead. Emergency response was overwhelming, expensive, and traumatizing. Something had to change. But what and how? It generated an enormous argument in the Japanese parliament. How should the government deal with disasters? Frequent natural disasters could cause further death and destruction, especially as Japan's growth and technology advanced. One modern challenge, how to safely stop that bullet train in case of earthquakes? To answer that question and get a better picture of the relationship between Japan and California when it comes to disaster planning, mitigation, and research, we talk with Satoru Nishikawa, Professor, Disaster Mitigation Research Center, Nagoya University. We talked by way of Zoom, he in Nagoya and I in Sacramento. So let's get to it right now. So, Professor yeah. Nishikawa, thank you very much for joining the All Hazards podcast here in California. How are things there in Japan? Well, right now we are seeing that two typhoons are approaching us. So oh we are a bit on alert. Maybe in three or four days, it may approach the southern part of Japan. Oh, boy. So is everybody bracing for the worst, hoping for the best? Not not so much because it seems that it's not really going to hit the mainland, but it okay. it seems that it's going to affect the Okinawa Islands in the south. Oh, yeah. okay, okay. Well, yeah. that's our luck to them, and hopefully they. Yeah, yeah. I hope it doesn't make any big disaster. Hopefully not, but you are yeah. prepared because that is part of what you do. We every year we are visited by two or three typhoons in a, uh, in average, so we are quite. I will say, used to it, but we should always be very careful. Yeah. Right. And so that is why we are talking today. We are yes. uh, talking with you because Japan has its own experiences and history with natural disasters. And mm-hmm. first of all, before we get too far into that, I'd love for you to tell our listeners uh, a little bit about yourself and uh, what your area of expertise is now. Okay. Well, uh, my original academic background is city planning and regional science. And that's what I measured in university, in master's course. Then I joined the Japanese government. And uh, I have worked with various positions, but I had 36 years of career in the Japanese government. But out of the 36, I have worked 12 years in the disaster reduction, disaster management affairs. And I have worked in the Japanese government and also uh, worked in the United Nations. It was called the Department of Humanitarian Affairs. Now it's called OCHA, where uh, I have coordinated various international emergency assistance to disaster-stricken countries. Also, I have worked with the Tokyo Metropolitan Government for long-term planning of that large metropolitan area. Also, I have worked very deeply 
into the field of water resources management. So if you have too much rain, it's floods. But if you have a small rain, it's going to change into drought. Water resources management is very important for any country. So most of my career in the Japanese government has been with either disasters or with water resources or regional planning. So that's my original background. All right, very good. So tell me a little bit about uh, the climate in Japan. Does it vary yes. from, okay? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a, well, the Japanese archipelago is very long. It stretches from the south to the north, uh, has a lot of variety of climate, but um, basically we have four seasons and we have very rainy seasons, usually from May to July, that's a monsoon rain season. And then uh, from uh, late August to October, we have the typhoon season. Now we are in the typhoon season. Mm. And the meteorological agency tells us that in three or four days, two strong typhoons may approach the southern part of Japan. So we are taking caution. So typhoons are, I would say, annual events for us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, but also in winter, we even have snow avalanches. In the, the Japan seaside, there's heavy rain, uh, snowfall in winter. And we have blizzards and also sometimes even snow avalanches. I was born in a place called Niigata, where there's very heavy snowfall. In one night, the snow piles up even one meter or two meters. So every morning, people have to, well, say, remove the snow from the rooftops of the houses. Otherwise, the house would collapse because of the enormous weight of the snow. I had no idea that much snow falls there. Yeah, it's, uh, it's amazing because uh, it's, the Japan's, uh, well, uh, the latitude is similar to California. So it's maybe it's unbelievable. There's so much snowfall hmm. in the Japan seaside. Japan is just like California in that yeah. we are on the ring of fire. Yes. And, and the ring of fire plays a very big role in, in our environment and, and what yeah. it is that we often have to deal with. So mm. let's start there. Let's talk about what Japan and yes. California have in common regarding yes. natural disasters. Well, the, well, as you have rightly said, we are both sitting on the ring of fire. So we both have a lot of earthquakes and earthquakes sometimes generate tsunamis. And that is what we have in common. If you look back into the history of Japan, we have so many records of earthquakes. If you look back into the history of California, you have a lot of records of earthquakes. And that we have learned a lot from the experiences of California. And we know that so many American uh, researchers came to us when we had earthquakes. So there's a, there's a lot of exchange between California and Japan, especially in the field of earthquakes and also uh, risks uh, modeling and other tectonic uh, research or structural engineering research. And this, of course, is uh, September 9th. That's when yeah. we're recording this. 
And mm-hmm. uh, from what I understand, uh, mm-hmm. September 1st was the Disaster Prevention Day in yes. Japan. And here in California or in the United States, mm-hmm. we are in the uh, preparedness month of September. So oh. we have a little bit in common there as well. Oh, um, yes. So obviously it's important to our countries and to our state of California to make sure that people are prepared and that they are aware yes. of the potential for disaster or else we wouldn't have these preparedness mm-hmm. days and months. Mm-hmm. So how have you seen uh, mm-hmm. the effectiveness of mm-hmm. the September 1 preparedness day in Japan? Has it been effective? Yes. Yeah. Uh, it's important that we have this annual disaster prevention day because when it's an year with, for example, uh, very heavy typhoon uh, damage, or if it's a year that we had earthquakes or volcanic eruptions, the mass media or the people would naturally pay attention to disasters. But the challenge is when there are maybe two or three peaceful years, I would say. And in that case, well, people, it's human nature that people tend to forget about disasters. Mm. But thanks to the 1st of September designated as the Disaster Prevention Day, at least even in peaceful years, the media, uh, the TV or the radio, they would take up the issue of disasters, at least on that day or on that week. And that that is a good reminder for us to be prepared for disasters. So that's, I think, the significance of having this, I'll say, commemorative day. Because the reason that 1st of September is designated as the Disaster Prevention Day in Japan is that 1st of September is the day that Tokyo was totally devastated by the 1923 Great Kanto Earthquake. 105,000 people were killed because of that single earthquake. So that was a very big shock to the Japanese at that time. So, and the uh, people who have been severely affected, they have had to flee away from Tokyo because half of Tokyo was totally burnt down. So they took refuge in, in other parts of Japan. And all of them, I'll say, at that time, it's 1923, uh, they all went to the other places and they told the local people how they suffered. So the story of the Great Kanto earthquake and the devastation of Tokyo was, I will say, clearly memorized mm. in the Japanese, I will say, history and in all places. So that's how it started. And also the 1st of September is usually the midst of the annual typhoon season. Mm. In Japan, uh, we usually start to have typhoons coming to Japan uh, in mid-August till uh, late October. So the 1st of September is really the midst of the annual typhoon season. So it serves as a, as a reminder for earthquakes and typhoons, which are the two major natural disasters for the Japanese. We'll continue our conversation with Professor Satoru Nishikawa in just a moment. 
on the way, remembering the historical 2011 Great East Earthquake. It was not only an earthquake, it generated an enormous tsunami. That tsunami directly hit the Fukushima power plant, causing a devastating nuclear disaster, on top of the damage already done by the shaking and flooding. For a country as disaster-prone as Japan, the government knew it had to change the way they thought about emergency response. The Japanese people felt that we cannot just wait for something to happen. But change would have to include everyone, and getting buy-in would take creative messaging. In a culture that has countless generations of storytelling, more of that seemed to make sense. Share more stories. How they have suffered. How they have struggled to make to save themselves. Back to our conversation with Professor Nishikawa. Tell me what some of the events on September 1st look like. Yeah. Okay. First of all, for example, we have the nationwide earthquake response drill, which is led by the prime minister. Very early in the morning, the prime minister and all the ministers walk from their apartments to the prime minister's office, uh, pretending that there's a, there was a big earthquake in Tokyo. You cannot use cars. They should walk hmm. to the prime minister's office within 30 minutes. And how far is that? How, how, so, so well, it, it depends. Okay. But usually they are supposed to live within walking distance of 30 minutes. So they first walk to the prime minister's office. And they gather in the special operation room in the prime minister's office. And all of the senior officials gather there to gather information on what happened. And they start playing the role of what to do in emergencies. Also, all of the mayors in the, the Tokyo metropolitan area, they are in their own uh, headquarters. And we connect with the, the prime minister's office is connected with the mayor's offices, governor's offices, and they start reporting how the damage is and what are the responses and what are the deficits, what are the gaps for uh, emergency emergency assistance. So that's how it starts. It's not really a uh, real disaster, but it's kind of an exercise. Sure, sure. Also, do, you involve, do you involve the uh, civilian population, schools? Yes, yes, of yeah. course. For example, this year, the hard-hit area was supposed to be Yokohama, all right, near to Tokyo. And the local population makes uh, evacuation drills. Also, the local firefighters make their rescue uh, drills. Mm. And the police, uh, also other, I would say, the engineers corps of the Ministry of Land, Infrastructure, and Transport, they do their best to try to uh, restore uh, and clear the roads, et cetera, et cetera. Hmm. And it's not limited to that, I'll say, drill or exercise. Fortunately, many of the mass media takes up the issue of disasters on this occasion. So important. Uh, the TV, so many TV programs, radio reports, also the newspapers, they take up the uh, news, or I would say, they make articles regarding the past uh, disasters. So that serves as a very good, I would say, wake-up call for people to 
think about disasters. Very important to not get lulled into a false sense of security. Very important, especially because Japan is a disaster-prone country. We've seen a yes. lot of natural disasters happen, as mm -hmm. you have already started to mention, the 1923 earthquake. Uh, mm -hmm. What are some of the other more significant uh, disasters that have happened in the 20th and 21st centuries? The most devastating was the 2011 Great East Japan earthquake and tsunami. 10 years ago. It, yeah, 10 years ago. It was an enormous earthquake, magnitude 9. Well, it's very big. And it was not only an earthquake, it generated an enormous tsunami, which hit the north, northern Pacific coast of Japan, stretching about uh, uh, 1,000 kilometers. So that was really a big, devastating disaster. And also, it directly hit a nuclear power plant, mm. which led into a nuclear accident. And because of its enormous power, magnitude 9 is really strong. And it not only the earthquake shaking, the enormous tsunami brought so heavy damage. So that's uh, one of the significant ones. Also, back in 1995, the city of Kobe was hit by a very, uh, I would say, direct hit earthquake. The epicenter was right beneath the city of Kobe. So the devastation was great. Uh, prior to that earthquake, people in Kobe did not feel so many earthquakes. Oh, it's strange, but if you live in Tokyo, in average, maybe at least once a month, you feel an earthquake if you live in Tokyo, small earthquakes. But if you live in the Western part of Japan, there are only small earthquakes which people do not feel. So it was human nature that the people in Kobe erroneously uh, believed that they will not have earthquakes in the future. So they were really suddenly hit by a surprise. So uh, that was a big shock because they did, were not prepared for a major earthquake, but a major earthquake came. So we lost more than uh, 6,000 people. Wow, that was a big shock. Big shock. Then dating back to 1959, here in Nagoya was hit directly by a very strong typhoon. It's called Isewan Typhoon. Uh, the Nagoya metropolitan area was directly hit by the typhoon. And it coincided with a high tide. So the typhoon brought enormous rainfall in the upstreams of the Nagoya metropolitan area. So the flooding came down from the hills, the, the enormous mountains in the back, and from the south because of the typhoon. The typhoon, because it's a low pressure, it generates a high tide and a storm surge from the sea. So the low-lying areas of Nagoya was sandwiched from the flooding from the hills and mountains and the storm surge from the sea. So the western half of Nagoya was totally inundated and more than 5,000 people were killed by that one single typhoon. And prior to that uh, typhoon, well, typhoons are annual events for us in Japan. 
And prior to that typhoon, whenever there was a major typhoon hitting Japan, we lost in average maybe 1,000 people. So, well, that was already a disaster, but 5,000 was really shocking for the Japanese government because it was not, not only of the casualties and also because it hit the third largest metropolitan area, mm. it brought e- enormous economic damage as well. How did those, um, those typhoons and the earthquakes, how did those disasters affect Japan's philosophy toward those disasters? Yeah, yeah. Especially the 1959 typhoon, because of its enormous damage, uh, it generated an enormous argument in the Japanese parliament. How should the government deal with disasters? Prior to that typhoon, the main, well, I'll say, remedy was to provide uh, tents and blankets and food to the affected people. How to relieve the people who were directly affected by disasters. That was the approach, so I'll say, uh, the reactive approach. Mm. However, because of the enormous damage by the Isuan typhoon, the Japanese people felt that we cannot just wait for something to happen. We should act more proactively and try to do some preventive efforts. So the 1959 Isuan typhoon was really uh, epoch-making turning point from a reactive approach to a more of a preventive approach. So that was, I will say, a very, the first very good turning point. Also, I think you know that Mount Fuji is a very beautiful and the highest mountain in Japan. And because of its beauty and its height, it was worshipped as God in the Japanese culture. But because of the Isewan typhoon, uh, well, we learned that we need more precise typhoon tracking, better weather forecasts. So at that time, the Japanese Meteorological Agency made a good argument that instead of worshiping the Mount Fuji as a god, let's mount a meteorological radar on top of that mountain, which would cover a very wide area and have more precise uh, typhoon uh, tracking and uh, warnings. So that at that uh, 1959 Isuan typhoon really changed the Japanese attitude towards disasters. So was it difficult to get that radar up on top of Mount Fuji because yes, of it reverence? seems. Yeah, because uh, it you had to have a very good helicopter operator to mount that huge apparatus uh, on top of that high mountain. What about about politically? Well, politically, it it seems to be very difficult. But because of the shock of the Isewan typhoon, the the general public accepted it Mm. because of the shock. Mm. And it was, I would say, a very positive investment for the safety of us. So getting back to the, uh, the 2011 tsunami that uh, did yeah. so much devastation and took so many lives, there was a huge outpouring of support from around the world. Yes, yes. Um, and the United States and from yes. California. Yeah. Uh, California and Japan have been uh, assisting and helping each other uh, for yes. quite a while, even before. Yeah, yeah. So 
tell me from your perspective, uh, mm-hmm. you know, what the, the feeling is there about that history of cooperation between Japan yes, and California. Yes, because we have a long history. We have learned that in 1906, San Francisco was hit by a major earthquake. And at the news of that earthquake, because Japan is an earthquake on countries, when we, our ancestors heard the news, they felt that they had to do something for California. And uh, the history books tells us that at that time, some of the major businessmen in Japan stood up to raise funding to provide assistance to California. Also, at that time, the Japanese Red Cross Society made their first international contribution to the American Red Cross to help the people of San Francisco after that earthquake. And then next comes the 1923 Great Counter Earthquake. When the American people, and especially the people in California, learned about the news of that earthquake in Tokyo, they immediately sent so many relief items, cash, to help Tokyo. So it's really a long history, starting from 1906. So that's how the cooperation between California and Japan started back in 1906 and 1923. And then, for example, you had the Loma Prieta earthquake, you had the Northridge earthquake, and on these occasions, the government officials, we exchanged uh, our experiences, so many academicians uh, went to uh, research, and coincidentally, when the Kobe earthquake happened in 1995, there was a scheduled Japan-American Joint Seismic Disaster Reduction Conference to be held in Osaka, nearby Kobe. Many of the American researchers, scientists, were in Japan. And also the Japanese scientists were there together. And at the news of that earthquake, many of them made joint research on the earthquake damage. So there is a long history between, Cal- especially between California and Japan regarding uh, earthquake disaster reduction. Yes, sir. It really says a lot about humanity uh, when um, we can reduce the size of the Pacific Ocean in, terms, in, in times of emergencies and crises. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's wonderful uh, that we can help each other that way. Japan has a wonderful uh, earthquake early warning system. Tell me a little bit about how that came to be. California has a similar earthquake early warning system, but they have a dilemma we don't. How to safely stop that bullet train in case of earthquakes? He'll talk more about what their system can do, plus a public information campaign that came after conversations with the Japan news media, stories of survival, to drive home the importance of preparedness. How they have suffered how they have struggled to save themselves. Let's continue our conversation with Professor Nishikawa. Japan has a wonderful uh, earthquake early warning system uh, Uh, that that we have studied as well. So Mm -hmm. uh, being partners, we Mm -hmm. can learn a lot from each other. Tell me a little bit about how that earthquake early warning system came to be. 
it started with trying to save the bullet train system in Japan. Oh. As you know, we have the very high speed railway, which started running from Tokyo to Osaka and on the, along the Pacific uh, coastline of Japan. And we knew that that uh, Pacific side of Japan had earthquakes, major earthquakes. And because these bullet trains runs at a speed of maybe 250 kilometers or maximum 300 kilometers per hour, the engineers had to find a solution how to safely stop that bullet train in case of earthquakes. That's how it started. Mm. So they knew that there is a time difference between the primary pressure wave and the secondary shake wave of earthquakes. And the primary pressure waves travels much faster than the secondary shake wave. The real, I'll say, damage from earthquakes are usually generated by the secondary shake wave. So by using the speed, the difference in speed of the primary pressure wave and the secondary shake wave, the seismic engineers, the seismologists, they have thought of this idea of a real-time earthquake early warning system. Real-time means that it starts with the detecting of the primary pressure wave. And by using the speed difference of the two waves, uh, it gives maybe we can earn maybe five seconds or 10 seconds or 60 seconds before the real shake comes. So that was, that's the basic, I would say, uh, structure of the real-time earthquake early warning system. It's not just enough to have these uh, earthquake sensors. Of course, you have to first detect the primary pressure wave. Then you have to calculate where the source is, the, the epicenter is. And then you have to calculate how long would it take to really reach the land landline. And uh, to the telecommunications have to be uh, much faster than the speed of the secondary shake wave. Mm -hmm. So there's, it's quite, a, I would say, a very sophisticated system based on a very dense network of seismometers. But it really saved people's lives in the case of the 2011 Great East Japan earthquake. The, the Shinkansen trains, when they got the warning, they speeded down and they had safe stops. Amazing. No, and no derailments. No derailments, thanks to that uh, system. Amazing. Also, this real-time earthquake warnings, uh, warning system uh, is received by, for example, uh, major factories, major hospitals, so that they can, for example, if there was an operation in the hospitals, if they get the alert, they can quickly stop the operation and try to ensure the safety of the patients. That's quite important. When was the system first online? Uh, well, the, Shin the Shinkansen system started very early, but the actual real-time earthquake early warning system, the testing to the uh, general public started in 2006. 
And the real uh, operation started in 2008. Brilliant. So getting back to the messaging, and uh, because we all know that communication Mm -hmm. is so important, whether it's technological or whether it's human, getting people to listen and to actually be part of Mm -hmm. the solution uh, Mm -hmm. is so important. And that's, you know, we find that same challenge here as well. You know, getting the public to accept their role in disaster mitigation is so critical. So does Japan see it this way? And it sounds like they do. We say that we need to have a good combination of self-help action and mutual help action and public action. Self-help action means that uh, families or individual businesses they have to prepare for their own safety. That's what we call self-help action. For example, affixing furniture safely in your bedrooms so you are not suddenly hit by a furniture in case of earthquakes. That can only be done by the family members. Or for the small businesses, they have to make sure that their well shops or small factories are earthquake-resistant, or they do not uh, induce fires in, in, in case of earthquakes, that kind of act, preventive action must be taken by individual small businesses. Also in large firm companies, they have to take care of the safety of their uh, employees. So that's kind of a self-help action. Absolutely. And, and getting that uh, message yeah. communicated to them and getting them to buy into it is so important. There was a, a saying, tell me if I'm saying this right, Ichi Nichi Mai? Yes. Ichi Nichi Mai means the, Ichi Nichi Mai means the day before. In Japan, we have so many educational materials for children regarding disasters. Uh, for elementary school students, junior high school students, well, they are very good children. They listen to what their teachers say. <laughs> but the problem is adults. Ah, yes. They are very busy. They are concerned about their business, their, their life, daily life. And even if we want to tell them, you have to be aware of disasters, well, it's sometimes bullshit for them. <laughs> They're so busy. They always say, that's none of my business. But they're the ones who has to take decisions in their families. The children, they cannot affix furniture. It's only the moms and dads who can take secure safety of their children. They have to take action. And I tried to make various programs for the adults, but I found it so difficult. The usual, I would say, uh, do's and don'ts, preaching style matters, the adults never listened. So I have discussed with many of my friends, especially in the news media, and I discussed, well, you news media people, you always criticize us in the government. I know that it's your role, but give us some help. And I discussed with them, how they can also have a positive role to play in trying to involve the adults. And one of the uh, very good friend of mine who was a news reporter, he said, they are very good at extracting stories from people. They interview people. And they said, came to an idea that 
by interviewing people who have been really affected by a disaster. That would make really good stories so that the adults can listen to. So I jumped on that idea. So it's called, now it's called Ichinshimai, the day before the disaster project. And what we do is we visit an area which was hit by a major disaster, maybe five or 10 years ago. Not, not directly after, because in five or 10 years, the people will settle down and they can, well, calmly tell us the experience. And we pose the question, what would you do if you were back the day before the disaster? And they will start telling us how they have suffered, how they have struggled to, make, to save themselves, how it was difficult to recover from the disaster. What was the obstacles for their, uh, say, uh, reconstruction, rehabilitation? And we tried to extract the most impressive stories. And because there are stories of, let's say, an office clerk who was working in, in the office, a shop owner who was trying to open his shops, or a housewife who was in her living room or in the kitchen, or even a young couple whose the wife was pregnant was in uh, uh, taking the uh, regular medical check at the maternity hospital and the couple was hit by an earthquake. So there are so many different personal stories. Mm -hmm. And because now we have more than 800 stories, if you look at the, one of these stories, there's somebody very similar to you. And that generates an empathy to that story. And when human beings feel an empathy, now it uh, strikes their hearts and it uh, leads to action. Genius, absolutely genius. We may have to uh, try our own, our own version of that here. I yeah, think. I'm encouraging <laughs> many people uh, outside of Japan to try to test the similar case because for for example if an american reads a story of a japanese they will say oh it's the across the pacific but if they listen to a story for example of a person who was directly affected by let's say the loma prieta then they may uh, take it serious yeah so that's the idea so do you uh, have any personal lessons that you can share with me? Something that you may have learned? Uh, maybe well, something that surprised you? Well, when I was working in the government as an emerge in the disaster reduction uh, section, uh, we were told to remember the number three. That is, when you feel an earthquake, brace yourself for three minutes to make secure your own life. That's three minutes. And within 30 minutes, try to make best your efforts to try to communicate with others within 30 minutes. Because after 30 minutes, all the telephone lines, all the communication lines would all be jammed. Mm. The first 30 minutes is a critical moment. Try to connect with each other. Then three hours. Three hours is the golden time for the first response. And how to respond quickly and to... Uh, Try to mobilize the relief efforts in three hours. Try to do their best, your best, 
in three hours. And then three days. Three days is the critical period for saving lives. It's usually said all of the search and rescue professionals, they know that of the golden 72 hours, that's for the life saving. So we have to make best effort for the three days. Then three weeks, that's how we have to do our best to provide relief to the affected people. And in three weeks, people will start to settle down, at least in temporary shelters. And then it changes into the uh, rehabilitation and reconstruction. So the number three, that was what I was taught and what I have been really doing. Three minutes, 30 minutes, three hours, three days, and three weeks. And there's an irony that in three months, people tend to forget about that disaster. Mm. That's difficult. Any final thoughts you'd like to share with us, Professor Nishikawa? Yes. And recently, I'm trying to uh, generate or start new cooperative programs uh, internationally, trying to have mutual lesson learning uh, programs. And uh, recently, uh, I learned that there is a call for application of joint U.S.-Japan academic research for disaster uh, reduction. And if some American scientists who is willing to uh, pair with me for joint research on, especially on business continuity of the health sector, I would really appreciate uh, somebody contacting me because because of the COVID-19, now people are more concerned about the continuity of the health services. And I think health services are important, not only for public health in normal times, but especially in disaster situations. So that's the new challenge I'm trying to start. And if there is an American researcher who is the volunteering to pair with me, that would be most welcome. All right, well, Professor Nishikawa, I wanna thank you so much for taking the time uh, so early in the morning to talk with us there. Thank you. Uh, in Japan, and uh, we really appreciate it. I would love for you to be able to come here and take a look yes. at our Cal OES headquarters here, the State Operations Center, and uh, maybe someday we'll get to come over there and take yes, a look please. at your place. I've wanted to visit Japan for a long time, so maybe someday soon I'll get to do that. Yes, please come. And also, especially in our Nagoya University, we have so many, I would say, interesting uh, displays for the general public to see and feel that disasters are not somebody else's affair. We are making best efforts how to try to raise the awareness of the general public and also for the uh, small and medium enterprises. Thank you. So if the COVID-19 settles down, please come. Thank you. My sincere thanks to Professor Nishikawa for taking the time to bridge the Pacific Ocean via Zoom and talk with us about Japan's disasters and mitigation efforts, as well as the shared research and cooperation between his country and California. We consider Japan a neighbor just as much as Mexico and Canada. And uh, California, of course, will continue to assist them when their call for help goes out 
following the next inevitable disaster. We've included some valuable links to many of the topics covered in this episode in the notes section of the podcast, as well as resources to contact Professor Nishikawa. We also thank you for listening. We hope you'll subscribe to All Hazards wherever you get your podcasts. And if you already have, thank you. If you have any questions or comments, send them to us via email, media at caloes.ca.gov. One more time, media at caloes.ca.gov. For everyone here at Cal OES, I'm Sean Boyd. Take care and be safe. You've been listening to the Cal OES All Hazards Podcast. Don't forget to check out our podcast page where you can find past episodes along with show notes and links. And give us a social shout out. Tell others about us on Twitter and Facebook. And let us know what you think. We'd love to hear from you.